October 25th, 2015, we find our heroines convening with a common purpose in mind, freedom for women of color. Freedom to earn, freedom to learn, to teach, to fight, to love, to be sexy. Freedom to be who and where we want to be. Freedom to shake our bodies innately in righteous rhythm as we say we have always been here. So go to www.womensfreedomconference.com and learn how you can assemble in support of the amplification of the voices of women of color. The 2015 Women's Freedom Conference. Bear witness to the evolution. You're listening to the Revision Path Podcast, a weekly showcase of the world's black graphic designers, web designers, and web developers. Through in-depth interviews, you'll learn about their work, their goals, and what inspires them as creative individuals. Here's your host, Maurice Cherry. Welcome to the Revision Path Podcast. My name is Maurice Cherry, and this is a milestone episode. It is Revision Path's 100th episode. It took a lot of hard work and sacrifices to make it here, but we made it, and it's really thanks to you. 100 episodes, 100 great black designers and developers out there doing amazing work all around the world. But before we get into this week's interview, let's talk about our sponsors, MailChimp, Hover, and Creative Market. MailChimp is the premier email service provider choice for entrepreneurs and small businesses. You can join more than 7 million people who use MailChimp to design and send 500 million emails every day. MailChimp has also recently announced MailChimp Pro, which is a powerful set of new tools for MailChimp that includes multivariate testing, compliance insights, comparative reports. It's really great stuff. So sign up today so you can see that as well as all the other great stuff that MailChimp offers at MailChimp.com. Do you need a new domain for your next project? Then check out Hover. Each domain comes with free private domain registration, unlimited domain forwarding, and world-class customer support. They also have this cool new feature there that's called Hover Connect, which lets you automatically connect any of your Hover domains to popular services like Tumblr, Squarespace, and Shopify. So go ahead and grab yourself a domain today. Use our promo code 100 episodes and save 10% off your purchase. Creative Market sells graphics, fonts, themes, photos, and a whole lot more starting at only $2. They give away a selection of free goods every Monday. Of course, today is Monday. And they've got great bundle promotions every month. And if you see something else that you like, use our promo code REVISIONPATH and save 20% off your purchase. Here's our Patreon fundraising campaign update. We are now up to 24 patrons for a combined total of $179 per month. A huge, huge thanks, of course, to all of you who continue to pledge your support and appreciation for the show. It really means a lot. If you want to become a patron of Revision Path, you can get access to some great perks like special giveaways, early access to future episodes, or maybe even a monthly Google Hangout with me and other Revision Path supporters. So head on over to patreon.com forward slash revision path and make that happen. Pledge levels are super affordable. They start at just $1 per month. That's a quarter a week. You can't beat that. Now, like I said earlier, the only way that we're able to reach 100 episodes is thanks to you. And several of you sent in some really great notes of congratulations. Here are just a few of them. Cat Small, if you remember, Cat has been on the show before. 
Kat says, Revision Path reminds me that I'm not alone and gives me a place to send recruiters. I'm endlessly grateful for its existence. Thanks so much, Kat. And actually, not even for recruiters, but for job seekers, too. If you check out our new job board, revisionpath.com forward slash jobs, there's jobs there from Buffer, from Friends of the Web, 18F, U.S. Digital Service. You might want to go check that out. If you're looking for your next gig, check those out. A lot of those also are remote positions, so you can work from anywhere. Please go check that out, revisionpath.com forward slash jobs. Geneva Nemzek. Geneva is also, along with Kat, um, they're Patreon members, so thank you, of course, for supporting the show that way. Uh, Geneva says, I love Revision Path. I'm in school for web development, and I love all the conversations you have with women in the field. If I need a little inspiration or motivation, I know I can just listen to one of your episodes and feel fired up again. Thanks for all that you do. Thank you, Geneva, for all you do, for checking in, for listening, for being a supporter and a patron. That means so much to me, so thank you. Alexandria Eddings says, Congratulations on the 100th episode. What I love most about Revision Path is the wealth of knowledge that it offers to young black graphic designers like myself. The insights offered from your guests are invaluable, and we probably wouldn't hear them anywhere else, including school. As a college grad, I know I didn't. The diverse range of perspectives that I've been exposed to on Revision Path prove that to be a black designer is to be a multiplicity of things. We are such a diverse group. Thanks for showcasing that. Thank you, Alexandria, for being a supporter. Uh, Alexandria was also one of the people that helped me get to South by Southwest so I could present there. Thank you all so much for sending in these great comments. We got one last one here. This is from Chooks Utogu. He says, I am a Nigerian-based software developer and graphics designer. When I came across Revision Path last month, I fell in love with it. I believe it's the best platform for people like me to let the world know we exist and to encourage other people of color. Wow. Folks in Nigeria are even checking in. That is amazing to hear. And lastly, here is one last special message. This is Rick Griffey. Congratulations on 100 episodes from AIGA, the Professional Association for Design, and our Diversity and Inclusion Initiative. Keep making us proud, Maurice. And for more, visit AIGA.org slash diversity, or join the conversation at hashtag AIGA together. Ooh, wow. <laughs> Thank you, Rick, and thanks to AIGA, the Diversity and Inclusion Task Force. Thanks for all that you all are doing to help put forth and continue the conversation about diversity in this field. It really means a lot to have your support. Now let's go on to this week's interview, our 100th episode. I talked with design maven Sarah Honey Young. Let's start the show. All right, so tell us who you are and what you do. Hi there, my name is Sarah Honey Young, but I prefer going by Honey, that's my middle name, and I am a creative director slash web designer slash front-end developer slash graphic illustrator. I'm currently living in Pittsburgh, but I am from New York City. So there's a lot of slashes in there because I know that you do a ton of stuff. Let's go to New York. Let's talk about kind of is, is New York sort of where you got your start as a designer? Yeah, definitely. I actually, I was born in Denver, Colorado. I went to Howard University, but I lived in New York for my entire adult life until uh, last year. And I'm in 1999, I, I moved to New York and I kind of thought I was going to be an actor. 
because I'm actually a trained actor. I have an acting degree, a acting degree, BFA from uh, Howard University. And I, you know, I was young and 20 years old. I had stars in my eyes, and I felt like I'm going to move to New York and be an an actor. I'm going to be on Broadway. I'm going to be in movies. I'm going to be famous. But of course, reality hit very quickly. <laughs> <laughs> that there aren't too many people who just literally step off the bus in New York and, and just get famous overnight. Nor do, do I think I had that perception, but I realized very quickly that I needed a job. So I went in the Village Voice newspaper. This is hilarious because I don't know if anybody actually looks for jobs in the newspaper anymore. I feel so old right now. <laughs> <laughs> I got my first design job. Well, my first like design tech job was looking in like a, a local alt weekly newspaper. Yeah, as well because we're, we're old. Because <laughs> <laughs> we are old in the industry, but. I saw something in the Village Voice for a web designer. Now, I had a website at the time that, you know, I was doing in college, but obviously the internet was not what it is now. So I didn't think that was actually a career <laughs> that was a thing. There was no web design majors or anything like that at the time. So I was like, okay, web designer, that means you can make websites. I can do that. I can do that. I know HTML is something. So I went on this uh, interview, and it was a French man named Maurice, funny enough, and he ran an escort agency, which he did not mention in the ad. And I was like, oh, this is tawdry, but this is a job. So I spent my first two years in New York designing escort websites. Wow. Yeah, and it was crazy because he asked me, you know, do you know how to design and code websites? And I'm like, yeah, of course. And literally after that interview, I hit up a friend of mine on AIM, which I don't think people use anymore either. <laughs> and I said, do you have front page? Because I just got a job as a web designer and I don't know what the heck I'm doing. So he actually sent me a pirated copy <laughs> of Microsoft front page and I learned how to use that program in a weekend and really showed up on Monday like just ready to wing it and fake my way through it and so that's how I initially learned because my first website that I was doing in college I did it with Microsoft Publisher and I didn't even like look at the code like it was just a disaster to even look at the source code back then it was just all tables 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 so I had no idea what I was doing it was the first ad I saw and if you would have told me then that it would become a career something that I would become extremely good at and passionate about I would have laughed in your face like no I'm just doing this until I become a famous actress what are you talking about <laughs> so yeah so New York was definitely my start into the web design industry and then about a year after I moved, actually a little less than a year, I started my first personal website, which was thatbitch.com, <laughs> which, again, I could have never predicted what the reaction to that um, domain would be. I remember my boss at the escort agency actually bought my domain for me in january 2000 because it was 35 dollars and that was like a lot of money to me i, I remember network solutions exactly that price yeah oh, my good lord like 35 dollars a year that's so much and i think you had to buy two years at one time so it was actually 70 and so he bought it for me and then turned it over to me but i was just kind of even back then i was amazed that it was available 
like, oh, nobody thought to register that. This sounds crazy. So <laughs> I um, really my first goal and what I think I really accomplished with that bitch was a lot of the web designers back then were white boys and they were using kind of Maxim pinup girls as yeah. the backdrops for their designs. And I said, no, 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 no. I'm a thick black woman and I want to feature thick black women in my design. So even the very first layout of thatbitch.com, it was just black women and just boobs <laughs> and voluptuous shiny lips. It was very artistic. Like I can still look back on it and be like, all right, this is, this is very artistic. It wasn't lewd. It wasn't, I didn't think it was tawdry, but the reaction to it was so crazy. Like, I couldn't have ever predicted what the reaction would be to those first few layouts. Because really, to me, I'm like, I'm just designing with women who, who look like me. <laughs> and, you know, putting a lot of colors and shapes and, and gorgeousness together and, and writing about my life. And as you know, that was before we called it blogging. Yeah. There was no software to update websites, so I was editing html by hand and uploading it with an ftp program and that was how i was journaling back then <laughs> and and even i think even then when i first started that bitch i called myself a web designer but i again i didn't see that that was going to be a long-term plan i really didn't have the foresight <laughs> to see where this career could actually take you so um, it was just something really fun that I did. And I loved, you know, getting accolades for being artistic because I've always been artistic. I actually was kind of torn when I went to Howard on whether I was going to major in acting or, or visual arts. And acting ended up winning out because I didn't have my portfolio together <laughs> mm -hmm. to declare an art major. You know, returning to art in that way and in that new medium as a digital artist, it was extremely exciting to me. And it's just like kind of, I talk a lot about sliding doors moments. And if one thing would have happened differently, what complete new direction would your life have gone? So I, there's like a series of sliding door moments that have led me to where I am today. One being Maurice, the escort guy. <laughs> <laughs> and one being my friend who gave me front page and the other just being, you know, I think I might have been listening to Missy Elliott. I was thinking this, listening to somebody and somebody said, I'm that bitch. And I was like, I'm that bitch. <laughs> That's me. <laughs> That's about to be my website name. And all of those things have led me to a lot of really incredible opportunities. I've met incredible, wonderful people. Like just to say that I've known, you know, you and some of the early like OG black blogosphere people to say I've known you guys for like 15 years is insane to me. Like think about where we started. That's true. I remember, I mean, I, I was, goodness. I mean, I started really kind of doing design and stuff in, I want to say it was probably like high school, yeah. like doing stuff on Angel Fire and Tripod, right, right. GeoCities, <laughs> just kind of, you know, trying to reverse engineer sites and, and things like that. And really, I think it wasn't until I got to college, probably it was around like 99, 2000, mm -hmm. that I was like, okay, I can probably like, you know, at least start to do this as a bit of a hobby. Right. But I, I mean, I wanted to do it kind of as my profession, but I mean, I went to Morehouse. They didn't really have the curriculum or the facilities to do any of that kind of stuff. Right. And and sort of to your point, like what you were saying, you were kind of torn between 
Do I do this or do I do something else? When did it really kind of stick for you that design was the thing that you should be doing? Honestly, I think it was maybe around 2001, 2002. I really feel like that was like the apex of that bitch popularity. And I remember just, I put out a new layout maybe every two months and the reactions, every new layout got so much bigger. Like I started going, clicking around to websites and seeing that that girls were designing like me <laughs> and saying, you know, this is, a, oh, this is a very honeyish layout. This is a honey inspired layout. And I'm like, wow, I'm like inspiring people. You know, that felt <laughs> incredible. Again, it wasn't my aim. It wasn't something I predicted, but it felt incredible that people would see something I created out of my head and really out of like divine inspiration and really just say, just to have a style. It made me feel proud. It made me feel proud. It made me feel accomplished, made me feel artistic and creative. And I was energized by being creative like that. I was energized by outdoing myself every time. So I think it was around that time also that I started getting recognized in person and which was weird. I mean, now it's not because now, you know, again, everybody's on the internet. <laughs> right. You know, if you have more than a few thousand followers on black Twitter, you probably find somebody that you follow or vice versa somewhere or other. But I was at the knitting factory, I think maybe in 2001 and a white dude actually came up to me and said, are you honey from that bitch? And I was like, yes. <laughs> <laughs> I was shocked. Like, wow, like people are actually reading this that are outside of like this core little group of people. So I think when I also recognize like, oh, this is kind of becoming a thing, this, this internet thing is actually becoming a, a viable sort of thing where you can actually get some kind of recognition. That's when it hit me too, like that this was going to be bigger than I originally anticipated, like I remember when I was in high school, I used to make money drawing on people. <laughs> I still can't believe people paid me to do this, but they would literally come up to me at the lunch table and say, I, can you draw a rose on my arm? Or can you draw, you know, this or that on my arm? And I'll give you $5. And I'm like, heck yeah, that buys more low main at school cafeteria. Yeah, I'll draw on you. And, and I think it just, even started there like oh I can like make money from art that's that's pretty cool and so and I also actually remember my dad <laughs> maybe rest in peace my dad I was really into chatting when I was in college too and I missed a class <laughs> one time because I could not pull myself away from like an AOL chat room or something <laughs> and my dad happened to visit the Howard campus that day, I think it was around homecoming. My father went to Howard as well. And he had my schedule and he went to my class to try and find me and I wasn't there. And when I, he finally found me, oh my Lord, he was so pissed. <laughs> he was so pissed. He was like, you're addicted to the internet and I'm going to pull you out of school and put you in community college. And I'm like, dad, you know, the internet is exciting. Like it's the new thing. It's the new thing, dad. <laughs> and so even to be able to tell my father, who never wanted me to move to New York, even to tell him, like, Dad, I'm actually, like, making a living and supporting myself doing what you told me to stop doing, <laughs> you know, just chatting on the Internet, writing about my life, 
getting this kind of response from just being this young woman living in New York trying to make it and, you know, putting my art out there, putting my perspective out there, you know, establishing an aesthetic. Like, my dad eventually kind of said, okay, wait, you know, you might be you might be onto something here. <laughs> <laughs> Talk to me about your time at Howard. Like, I know... When we went to, to college, we sort of went in that, like, I mean, it was that post a different world generation where certainly we grew up watching it. Mm-hmm. And once we got to be of age to go to college, what was it like for you? What was Howard like? Oh, man, I loved Howard so much. I mean, I didn't have any choice to go there because, again, my father, <laughs> my father is um, a bison. So he was talking to me like my entire life about H.U. Howard. He was taking me to homecoming and it was just so exciting to me. It was like exactly like a different world. I remember telling my friends at home like that it was just like school days. Mm -hmm. (laughs) I was like, it is exactly like that. I cannot wait to go. And also just growing up in Denver, I mean, I certainly had a core group of black friends, but I didn't grow up around all black people. And I, I was like, okay, if I had a, a choice, I would really want to be just immersed in my culture. And that's kind of how we gravitated towards each other in Denver as well. There's definitely, like, people have jokes and say, oh, there are black people in Colorado. Yes, of course, stupid. There's tons, <laughs> tons of black people in Denver. There's all black high schools in Denver. You know, I certainly had a lot of black friends in Denver that I am still friends with to this day. But I felt like going to a predominantly white institution would kind of be more of the same. And I wanted to be immersed in blackness. And my father was extremely militant too. Like he probably, my dad probably made me read the autobiography of Malcolm X when I was like 11. Wow. (laughs) Yeah. True story. I read roots really young too. Like (laughs) he was was almost traumatizing. (laughs) (laughs) to read those things and still like go to school and kind of like have to sort out the fact that there was racism in the world. It was like, that was something I was very aware of very early on. And so, yeah, going to Howard was very important to me. I loved it there. I still love it there. I actually went back actually about a month ago and it looks so different. I hadn't been there in a few years and it's so like, it's really nice. (laughs) It's really nice now. But when I went to Howard, it was, it's in the middle of the hood, honestly. Yeah. And I really, the first thing that struck me, and this wasn't necessarily a new concept, but it really struck me at HU. Okay, black people don't just listen to hip hop. Black people don't just dress this way. Black people don't just talk this way. Because I definitely had my moments of people being like, you talk like a white girl, but nobody said that to me at Howard. Because there was tons of people that talk just like me. Tons of people who came from all over the world, really. I've met black people, obviously, from Canada. First gener- I did, had never met, like, first-generation American black people until I went to Howard. Like, people from different countries in Africa. Black people from Asian countries. It was awesome. Awesome to me. And that was the first thing that struck me. Like, black people are not this monolith, Borg-like community of people black people listen to hip-hop they also listen to heavy metal they listen to alternative black people don't just dress in baggy pants like just kind of all those asinine stereotypes that i think a lot of people may they may continue to have them i don't know how when we're like everywhere in media you know and all our myriad of beautifulness but 
it was very energizing to be in that kind of an environment. And of course, and my brother actually lives in D.C. and still does. And he told me, you're going to come to Howard and get really militant and political. <laughs> and I was like, I don't see how I could possibly be more militant being raised by our father. But I definitely started wrapping my hair. <laughs> <laughs> like that was around the time that Eric Abadzi first came on the scene and, yeah. and everything. So... And I definitely used, like, the word overstand. <laughs> I definitely was a little hotepy, like. <laughs> did you go to poetry slams? Oh, you know I like did. That? You know I did. I was a spoken word artist, honey. Yes, I was. Um, <laughs> definitely went to poetry slams. That was so big at Howard. My goodness. It was, like, like every weekend there was, like, a poetry slam. Of some yeah. sort. All the talent shows were like just filled with spoken word artists and, and poets and everything. When did Love Jones come out? Was that 97, 98, 99? I think some, so, somewhere yeah. I think 97, yeah. Yeah. Love Jones definitely came out when I was in college. <laughs> I remember going to college and like they would have, I mean, I was, I was at Morehouse, but Spellman would have these these poetry nights in Lower Manly, which is one of the dorms. And mm-hmm. I mean, everyone would have their well-worn Marvel composition books <laughs> reading and talking staccato like this. Hey, girl, I, I remember that. Say you right. were over there with your walk. Like, oh my God. <laughs> like, it makes me cringe, but that was, a, that was a beautiful time. And I still love Love Jones, by the way. A lot of people have their jokes about Love Jones, but I love that movie. Like, it is such a quintessential, like, 90s experience that movie like yeah. every girl wanted to go out and find her little Darius love hall you know oh my gosh <laughs> just and he was so corny in retrospect like watching that movie as an adult now as opposed to a teenager i'm like oh, i would have never gave this dude the time of day he's just such a swarmy arrogant asshole but <laughs> and also i'm glad that you brought that up because in that movie nina worked for vibe magazine and ah, she did. That's she right. did, and I kind of had this this dream, like, oh, I'm gonna I'm gonna work for Vibe magazine one day, which ended up happening. Talk to me about that time. I remember you working there. I did. Um, I actually my first few jobs after the escort situation were all via people who were fans of that bitch. They'd say, like, my first job after that was actually support online hip hop, SOHH.com, which at the time. Oh, wow. Yeah, which was a part of Urban Box Office, UBO, which was a very, very famous dot com crash story. I I mean, I want you to answer the question, but oh my God. I mean, this is such. (laughs) For the people that are listening that don't know this, this is such like rich like early 2000s black web history yeah yeah urban box office and god what was the site urban expose with christmas addicts yes, and everything yes, oh yes. my god and like there was something that was like something 360 something 360 oh yeah all those sites they were like just and like do you remember like the first like jlo site it was just like a took like eight hours to load but it was like this flash extravaganza (laughs) like that was the type of stuff that we started doing in those early 2000s so but yeah just to fast forward real quick i worked for vibe for two years from 2006 to 2008 it was uh, a friend of mine that i knew through my website said that they were hiring a web designer and i said okay you know sure that's fine i think i was freelancing at the time and i was like well i don't want to pass up an opportunity to work for Vibe magazine. And honestly, walking into the Vibe offices was like walking up to Howard for the first time. I was like, in almost in awe, like, my God, like, 
this is where Dream Hampton worked and da- I met Danielle Smith and Elliot Wilson and I was like wow all these hip-hop journalists who mm-hmm. I'm such you know a huge fan of were kind of either they were there at the time or they had left but I kind of like felt them in the walls like with Vibe magazine you know and like Vibe is just and I also don't know if like younger people realize how freaking influential Vibe magazine was in the 90s and early 2000s oh my gosh. Like, yeah. especially the big format before they shrunk to like the eight by 10 and when it was still a huge magazine, like Rolling Stone mm-hmm. and it still had the like kind of flimsy pages, like yeah. and the photography alone of Vibe magazine was like so incredible. I could not wait. The covers, all of that. Yeah, I still have a lot of, I still have a lot of my old vibes from like 96, 97. See, cause I, I, cause I, yeah. Cause like I grew up, I mean, I was, you know, a, poor black child in Alabama. And like, that was kind of the only sort of, I mean, there were, you know, cultural touchstones and things like that, but to something that was such a big movement, like hip hop, like I could see and read the words of the people that I saw on television, right. like this big magazine in the middle of nowhere. I mean, I, yeah, really now, I don't know if people now realize just how big vibe was, yeah. how much of an inspiration it probably was. This is like completely iconic institution vibe magazine. And I definitely felt that walking in there. Like I, and I think it was because everyone that worked there knew it too. Like mm. this is a big damn deal to work here and to be brainstorming with these people and I'm still friends with a lot of people that I met at Vibe Magazine who are doing awesome things now like Julianne Shepard is over at Jezebel now, Josephine Cummings is at The Post, like those are Erica Ramirez, I think she's at Billboard Magazine, Sharia, like these are all people who I met just working at Vibe and I came on as a web designer and um Eventually, I was promoted to interactive art director, and it was a really awesome, energizing time. Like, I still, like, miss Vibe magazine as it was, like, the big format magazine. But, of course, I also walked in there knowing, like, okay, guys, your website, which was just, oh, horrible looking when I first started working (laughs) there. I couldn't wait to get my hands on that thing. I said, you know, guys... And I preached this the entire two years I worked there. Like, you can't keep treating Vibe.com as the redheaded stepchild of this magazine. <laughs> like, we're yeah. kind of, like, going in a direction now where that you're not going to be able to be as relevant if you're just, if the website is just an accompaniment to the magazine. Like, you need to elevate the website to the status of the magazine. And it's just something that I don't think anybody there really took my advice on quite frankly because a few months after i left they folded yeah i mean that was such an interesting kind of nexus point with digital publishing and traditional Mm -hmm. magazines how Mm -hmm. that you have these print magazines that are you know going out of print going out of business moving more to digital operations and things like that so you're kind of a you had the foresight to see that this is something that they needed to do and I mean, vibe.com is still around now, but it's, it's a blog. It is. Basically. Yeah. It just feels different. And I still do know some people that are working at vibe.com, but it honestly just doesn't have the magic that it did. And mm-hmm. I probably sound like an old ass fogey saying that like back in my day, 
<laughs> but there's just something that I think is a little bit lost in that transition. And of course, this is not to say that if they were to listen to me, they would still be around. But I'm not going to shy away from saying that I was a huge like proponent of doing something way, way bigger and greater with that website. And it was like, they were just very adverse to it. Like there's a lot of old hat sort of digital, or I'm sorry, like traditional publishing people that were running the show there. And they just, I don't know, they didn't, they didn't really get it with the, the passion that I was trying to deliver the message. So, so yeah, I ended up leaving in 2008 to, why did I leave? Where did I go? Oh, I freelanced again. I ended up freelancing again. My father actually passed away in mid-2008. And needless to say, that was such a huge, life-changing experience for me. And I just kind of felt like I wanted to explore some other opportunities. Glad, though. That was a great experience. I loved it. But yeah, so going backwards a little bit, I started at UBO and then went in one day and we were all fired. (laughs) Because we ran out of money. <laughs> like, just honestly, living through that dot-com crash, oh, my gosh. I was, like, it, it was it was a wake-up call, really. Like, they were pouring millions of dollars into these websites. Like, it was like, how are you going to maintain this? I don't think anybody was asking those questions because they were, like, we had our launch party on Ellis Frickin' Island, son. I was like, how much does this cost? <laughs> Like, we're having a website launch underneath the Statue of Liberty. I mean, it was gorgeous. I think one of the Ronson people DJed it. It was such a, it was so fancy. And here I am, like, 21 years old. Like, just, oh, look at me. I'm big time in New York right now. And then, yeah, I think, like, maybe two months later. I was like, oh, yeah, we're all fired. Like literally went into the office. Like people, it was like the Wild Wild West, Maurice. Like people were just grabbing shit and leaving with it. Like computers. <laughs> I was like, what is happening? It was unreal. And then I actually went to a company called Ultrastar, which was acquired by Live Nation sometime after I left. And at Ultrastar, we were basically maintaining the official dot coms of. David Bowie, I think it was actually co-founded by David Bowie, Rolling Stone, Red Hot Chili Peppers, Mariah Carey. I designed Mariah Carey's website in 2003, I want to say, which was a huge freaking moment for me as well, because Mariah Carey. (laughs) And I think we had like the American Idol fan site. I think we ran that as well. That was an awesome experience. And I left Ultrastar to go to Vibe. So that kind of fills in that gap there. I want to talk about magic when i see your designs i'm a huge huge fan of your work like when i was i mean because i'm self-taught and go to school for design or anything like that Mm but i mean there was always like this certain kind of magic and i almost want to say like sensuality with your designs Mm -hmm. that was just like how is she doing this i don't understand like how would you describe your design style like who have been some people or music or books or art or anything that has influenced you i have always loved like alphonse mucha who's like Mm -hmm. a old 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 you know painter but i just loved like kind of the sensuality and like the strong aesthetic in his work i'm a huge fan of fafi and miss fan who are female graffiti artists who do like very very sensual 
erotic sort of graffiti. And I kind of liked that concept. Like these women are in this quote unquote boys game, like tagging walls with these voluptuous, gorgeous women. And those are kind of the people early on that I don't think I had immediately said I am going to design like them, but it loosely inspired like my aesthetic. Like I, again, definitely wanted to accentuate voluptuousness and sensuality is a great word too. And it still kind of informs my work. Obviously I can't be super sexy with some of the more corporate things <laughs> that I design, but my personal aesthetic and, and definitely what I go for with the things that I do personally and the clients who give me that leeway, there always is kind of a hearkening back to some kind of sensuality to it. I think it's just my personality. I just maybe I'm just like a sexy broad or something. <laughs> <laughs> and I think it also has to do with, with growing up in Denver and not really having the sort of role models or iconic women that I think younger girls have now to kind of look up to that are bigger bodied, thick, voluptuous. Like that wasn't something I knew was desirable I felt extremely undesirable when I was younger you know and a lot of people probably wouldn't see the inherent issue in that like well what do you mean why are you supposed to be desirable at 16 years old but I think it's more so like just feeling personally desirable feeling attractive feeling beautiful feeling strong and having ownership of that and being able to harness the power of that and it wasn't until I went to Howard, you know, I think that's probably the first time anybody called me thick. And I was like, thick? <laughs> I was like, I, I guess I'm thick. Like, is that good? <laughs> you know, I used to tie like my hoodies around my waist because my butt was so big. <laughs> and I was like kind of embarrassed by it. But not to necessarily say that I needed the male gaze to feel good about myself. But it honestly, it, it didn't hurt to kind of feel like, all right, maybe there is something like beautiful and desirable about me. Because, you know, the mainstream, of course, was always, you know, telling us and I guess they still do. But it was I feel like it was even worse back then telling us that it was really desirable to be thin and white and that's it yeah so yeah I think that definitely comes through in my work like just wanting to exemplify a different definition of beauty it kind of setting forth an aesthetic that is not decidedly mainstream or not decidedly even acceptable I find myself like very naturally rebelling against traditionally acceptable shit Mm -hmm. So sensuality is, is, is big with me. So when you talk about your career, it kind of sounds like you had this almost ebb and flow between nine to five work and freelancing. Mm -hmm. Where are you at now? Are you working somewhere? Are you currently freelancing? I'm currently freelancing again. When I left, I worked for BET for four years until last year. That was my job after Buy Magazine, after that freelancing period. I went to BET and I was the senior front end developer at BET for four years. And I decided it was time to leave New York. Honestly, I needed a change. I went through some personally devastating sort of situations. And I honestly wanted my mom. <laughs> I wanted my mama 
My mom moved back to Pittsburgh when I went to college. She's originally from Pennsylvania. Both my parents are. And I I really wanted my mommy. (laughs) I had just given birth to my son. And I was like, okay, this is hard. It was hard with my daughter. But it was really hard having two kids in New York. Despite having a huge support system, it just... I didn't feel like my money was going as far as it could be anymore. And I was making very good money at Viacom. Like, all hell, Viacom. I will not talk shit about them for anything. <laughs> because <laughs> they, they paid me very well. And it was a very, very beautiful, collaborative work environment. But I just didn't have what I needed in New York anymore. So I, I moved to Pittsburgh. And I looked for a job for a a while maybe like three months and it was also kind of a new experience being thrust into a new place where I I didn't have any networking right you know like I'm a huge proponent of organic networking like not necessarily meeting people with a specific gain in mind which I guess is fine too but it's not how I operate it was just literally so many job opportunities that I've gotten has been through just having organic friendships with people and then having something pop up at their company and saying, oh, yeah, honey would be perfect for this. And I'm extremely grateful for that. But in Pittsburgh, I'm like, okay, I don't know anybody really. Like I have cousins that live here, my mom, my aunts, my uncles, but I didn't have anybody in my age group in this industry mm-hmm. living here. So I said, you know what, this is as good a time as any to establish my own company because I also noticed, and this is a repeating theme, no black women owned agencies in Pittsburgh, at least not that I've identified. And I have definitely Googled my ass off, asked on Twitter, asked on Facebook, are there any black women helmed design agencies in Pittsburgh? And I don't think there is any. So that's what I want to do. You know, that's what I'm trying to establish now. Uh, my agency is called Supreme Clientele. And it's hard as hell. I'm not going to lie. There's definitely been a lot of temptation to find myself a nine to five. I've, I've had a couple interviews all elsewhere. I interviewed mm-hmm. in New York. I interviewed in DC, but it just seemed more appealing to keep going with this. And it, I'm still seeing where it's going to take me. I have some huge projects that I'm about to launch in the next week or two. And I'm really excited to see how those kind of propel my goal. Are you at liberty to talk about any of those projects? I am actually. (laughs) So I am actually working on several projects right now. Um, All of them are in sort of various stages of development. But the the first one I want to mention, probably the one that, that means the most to me personally, is the work I'm doing with the Women's Freedom Conference. Um, I'm serving as creative and technical director of that undertaking. And what it, what it basically is, is a live streaming conference that's taking place October 25th of this year, so coming up very soon. And the entire event aims to center women of color, um, our successes, our concerns, the work we're doing, our activism, our, our magic, and, and really our very existence. Um, we really have a lot of great women involved, and it's going to be both pre-recorded and live content. It's going to be, again, just streaming the entire day on October 25th. It'll be accessible um, on womensfreedomconference.com. And uh, I designed the website. I did the branding, the media kit, because we definitely have had to reach out to a lot of companies to try and sponsor us. 
um, I'm overseeing the development of the platform that will actually allow us to stream all this content and also just have a robust enough sort of situation that we hope that we'll have women all around the world, really people in general, but, but women especially watching from all over the world because we certainly have participants, you know, people who are speaking or doing panels or webinars or who are volunteering from five different continents throughout the world. So it's really exciting right now. Um, the organizers are myself, Feminista Jones, and Melanie Dion. And we have Jamila Lemieux from Ebony is involved, Mickey Kendall, Jamel Hill, Netta Elzi, who's an awesome activist from Ferguson, Bossy Itke, who is an awesome deaf poet and mental health advocate, Lourdes Hunter, Catherine Finney, Regan Gomez, the actress. Like, we have a huge list of really incredible women of color who are involved in this undertaking, and I think it's going to be amazing. I, I invite everybody to go to win, womensfreedomconference.com to see the rest of the speakers, to see what kind of content we're going to be featuring. And this is women of color, period. This is trans women. This is black women, Latin women, Asian women, women of Middle Eastern descent. Like, we're not, we're not trying to um, just do something for just American black women here, even though, you know, as an American black woman, obviously I'm, you know, very, very involved in, in uh, getting our voices heard, but there's women all throughout the globe who we want to um, kind of engage in sisterhood and have this really positive, informative, cathartic event where we really feel like our voices are being amplified throughout the world. And, and this is really something that's never really been done before in this format. And just me as a tech geek, it was extremely important for me to be on board with something that was, was so sort of technologically lofty. <laughs> so, uh, again, Women's Freedom Conference. We, I, gosh, I still have so many things that I, that I want to do for that project, but I actually do have it up on uh, Supreme Clientele, my portfolio. I have that project up, you know, if you want to take a look at the work I've done thus far. Uh, the second one that I'm working on, this one is, is in... It's in its infancy stages, although the idea has been in my head for an extremely long time now. And that one is called the Black Girl Design Developer Voltron, or BGDV. Black Girl Design Developer Voltron. And that is kind of what it sounds like. I, I want to bring together black women who are designers and developers in the tech world, you know, as this conversation of diversity and tech sort of amplifies it's becoming more and more relevant to the world every day the things that we've known for a long time now uh that there just really isn't enough amplification of the voices of black women in these fields specifically and i think still the mind state like even the reaction i get when I tell people that I'm a web designer or I'm a creative director and art director is like wow oh wow how'd you get into that like you know, kind of the same way anybody else did, I guess. You know, I, I like art and I like technology and and that's pretty much it. But I don't want there to continue to be this this um, stereotype that black women are not involved in these fields, you know. Um, so what the Black Girl Design Developer Voltron is going to be is 
in in the beginning, I really just want it to be a blog. I might do it on medium.com. Um, this is something I've talked with um, Anil Dash about, as well as Christy Tillman, who was previously on the Revision Path podcast, you know, kind of mentioned it to them on even just Twitter, sort of echoing my frustrations about how, although there's so many of us out here, I don't feel like we have one place where we're really dialoguing with each other, you know, kind of blogging about our experiences as not just black women in this field, but just as people in general, as professionals in this field. Um, I want to talk about design trends, and I also kind of want to have a private sort of experience where we can bounce ideas off each other and get some feedback. Uh, Eventually, I would love if I could expand it into something not unlike a dribble or a working, not working, which is half sort of a showcase or portfolio platform, but also a platform where companies and people can come to actually hire these women. You know, if they're specifically about diversifying their spaces, well, okay, these are black women right here, you know, that you have to choose from who have awesome work. Now, my my problem, of course, with the working, not workings and the dribbles is that they're mainly comprised of white guys and they were founded by white men and when you have and they're invite only so I am on dribble but it took like so much drama for me to even get on there and the problem with these white majority invite only tech spaces is that it's almost impossible for them to have diversity there because of course we know that white people the the majority of their their colleagues are also white so if it wouldn't it's not even a racism thing specifically it's more just systematic like they're not going to really know a lot of black people to invite into these spaces so the black girl design developer Voltron is going to be you know all of these things and and more I want to talk about why Working with big brands shouldn't be a job requirement. I want to talk about the importance of having personal passion projects as a creative. Just, you know, things like that. I've collected so much knowledge over the years, and I don't feel like I have anywhere specifically besides Twitter where I can really kind of share my knowledge. And um, I also want to, of course, inspire other little black girls who want to get into this field or who or really who wouldn't have even thought to get into this field that there's women women that look just like them doing these big dope beautiful important sort of projects so that's the black girl design developer Voltron I'm really really hype about about that one I don't know that it's going to be up by the time this podcast airs but it, it again is something that's in development it's one of those projects that you feel really passionately about and you continue to like take notes on it and think about it, but it just keeps being on the back burner as you have to handle all these other projects. And that's like my, one of, one of my dream projects that has been on the back burner way too long. So before the end of 2015, that's going to be up. Like I'm just going to speak it into existence right now. Um, so yeah, my third project that I'm working on uh, is the Lost Queens campaign. Now, Lost Queens is um, it's a jewelry brand. It's like fashion jewelry brand. But what's unique about it is it was founded by a young black woman named Ebony. Uh, she's a friend of mine. And 
what Lost Queens kind of, their message is, is that this is sort of jewelry, this is adornment for the goddess inside. Like, you know, find your inner goddess is kind of the tagline that we're going with right now. You don't have to fit this one sort of stringent society-defined outline of, of what a queen is, you know, quote-unquote queen, like, or that sometimes we even bury the queen inside of us because society tells us, oh, if you can be a, you can either be a freak or you can be a queen or you're a lady or you're a bitch or whatever. Like, lost queens, we don't, they don't, they don't get down with, like, that, <laughs> that sort of mind state. Like, it's, it's more so, like, we all as women have queens inside of us and it may be lost or buried somewhere, but it's in, inside of all of us and it doesn't have to fit this specific criteria. Um, so I just thought that was really cool, you know, her, her concept in general. And uh, I even love that she names her products after these influential, inspirational women of color. And that's like from celebrities to activists and in between, like Nikki Giovanni to Nicki Minaj, Asada to Rihanna, Grace Jones, Arthur Kitt, Angela Davis. Like she has jewelry named after all those women. And she also uh, gives a percentage of her income to, to different charities that, uh, that directly and beneficially sort of help, you know, women of color. So, you know, I just, I saw this great concept that she had and she's, she, and Ebony's done a great job of building this brand loyalty, this very like grassroots, honest, young sort of cult following that she's cultivated and I you know I was observing this and I said you know I think you're doing an awesome job but I think you know we could take your presentation to an even higher level so I actually was in New York not too long ago directing a huge photo shoot we had for the fall campaign I directed a 30 second and a 50 15 second ad spot that we're going to put out. Uh, all of this was shot on location at the Royal Tin in New York City, one of my favorite hotels. Um, I'm redesigning the website. I redesigned the branding and basically elevated sort of the aesthetic of this brand to the awesomeness of the concept. So uh, hopefully all of this will be um, launching probably in the second or third week of October. And I, I'm really, really excited about that one, too, uh, mostly because just making sort of the transition from calling myself a web designer slash art director slash senior developer, which are all positions I've held before, to kind of calling myself a creative director now. Like I, I run an agency now and I'm doing this creative director level work. And I knew that I needed a reel, for example, and I needed to actually direct a campaign and sort of elevate my portfolio to that level. So the Lost Queens work that I'm doing, I actually donated all of it to her. I didn't charge her for any of it because I felt it would be, you know, mutually beneficial. And plus, I would love to be in a position where at least once a year, if not more often I can donate the services of my agency to a brand like that who I really believe in what they're doing. I really believe in their message and I just feel like they need, you know, that extra step of a, a website design or a branding sort of redo. And, you know, those are things that, that some of these companies, they have all heart, but they don't necessarily have the financial backing to, to you know, retain a company like mine. So, um, 
lostqueens.com that will be um, accessible again maybe the second or third week in October maybe before the podcast comes out I'm really crossing my fingers for that but it's a lot of work to be done um, and then the last project I'm working on another one that I think is really dope um, it's called 1839mag 1839mag it'll be on 1839mag.com uh, I think we're launching on October 19th. Now, what 1839 is, it's Pittsburgh-based. And um, my cousin Damon Young, who is also the editor-in-chief of VerySmartBrothers.com, which I am the art director of, he actually signed on as editor-in-chief of 1839 as well. And what the magazine is is aiming for is kind of exploring the intersection of race, politics, the art, community, and culture, um, and, and really the nuanced totality of black life in Pittsburgh, um, which it was really important to me because, you know, I've, I've lived in Pittsburgh now for about a year and a half, and coming from a place like New York, I am used to seeing so much more of a concentration of black people and really just having spaces where I can go and see more diverse, specifically cultural places or experiences. And it's not something that I've really been able to find in Pittsburgh. So this was something that, I, that I'm also the creative director of this entity. And I signed on really because I wanted to, really just wanted to meet more black folk out here, especially art, artists and journalists and photographers, which, which are all the people that are going to be contributing and have contributed already to this, to this website that we're building. Um, it's, um, funded in part by the Kelly Strayhorn Theater, which is a really awesome, uh, theater out here in Pittsburgh. And, um, also Heinz Endowments, um, you know, gave Kelly Strayhorn this really amazing grant to kind of make this entity happen. Because it's something that a lot of people, a lot of people of color in Pittsburgh have really called for. And now it's, you know, it's something that we're, that we're really excited about. Um, I've just designed the web, the website is all completely done, all the branding. And this one's cool because it's from the ground up, you know, it's not something that's existed. So I, I kind of had the reins to do whatever I wanted with it, you know, as creative director, which I absolutely love and sort of my aesthetic concept for 1839 is something that I really haven't been able to do with any project before and that's I could kind of be inspired by print design you know it's it's a big format site like we don't really have above the fold rules on 1839 everything is very big the photography is big and beautiful it's definitely retina display optimized the the pictures are gorgeous you know I kind of I I grew up on like vibe magazine especially in the 90s like 90s vibe magazine and early 2000s was like it for me um and I had the you know of course pleasure of being the interactive art director at vibe and just knowing like how much of an impact that had on me even as an artist, I, I really kind of wanted to bring some of that feel to 1839. So it's definitely inspired by print design. It's got a very, very distinct look. It's very distinctive, and uh, which was my goal, really. I wanted people to be able to say, okay, this is interesting. This looks not 
too much like anything I've ever seen presented on the web. And and more of that theory will, will come as, as we go. Like, I, I love parallax sort of presentations, like the one that Pitchfork did for, I think, Janelle Monet. I thought that was really dope, and I kind of wanted to bring some of that feel to 1839. Um, so, yeah, we're work I'm working with freelance artists, illustrators, photographers, photo editors. I'm conceptualizing and pitching sort of design things to the sponsors we want to work with because there's also no like typical traditional advertising on 1839 it's it's there's no no ads <laughs> there's no typical sort of 768 by 90 or skyscraper ads on 1839 we're going to kind of do custom sort of things with the sponsors that and, and advertisers that we do sign on so I'm actually creative director and I guess I'm marketing director as well um which is something I haven't really done before but of course I've worked you know alongside a lot of marketing you know people and PR people throughout my career thus far so 1839mag.com October 19th and I, I, yeah, another another project I'm really excited about. And then those are the four main ones I'm working on. And those are keeping me extremely, extremely busy. But I really feel like all four of these projects are going to elevate me in a way that I haven't really been elevated before. Not only like with what I'm putting into the work, but I think what it will show people that I'm capable of. And also the fact that... Every single one of these projects isn't just a vanity project or isn't just something that looks cool. These are like actual, like culturally significant sort of projects that I'm working on. And, and that means a lot to me as well. You know, just really redefining what it means to be a black designer, you know, or at least redefining it in, in the ways in which I've presented myself as a designer so that's you know very important to me you know I actually really love that all of these projects are are black in nature you know I don't think that we have to necessarily and this goes back to me saying I wanted to write about how calling for designers who've only worked with big brands before is is bullshit like I think that we need to get away from the mindset that we have to have an Apple or a Google on our portfolio to be seen as a top tier designer. These projects, I think, put me in 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 that arena, at least in the freaking arena, <laughs> if not in the driver's seat, but at least in the arena. And I and I love that all of these projects are are so culturally specific in that way. So those are the projects I'm working on. And me, of course, I'm supreme clientele.co. One of the things that you mentioned, it's actually something that I brought up in a recent talk of mine. I just spoke back in September. I spoke at the Hopscotch Design Festival in Raleigh, North Carolina, and I did this presentation called Where Are the Black Designers? Mm -hmm. And part of what I was talking about is to what you've mentioned is that the design media that is reflected back onto us designers in general is largely white, largely male. Mm -hmm. We see that in speaker panels for conferences. We see that with agency websites, yep. blogs, podcasts, books, magazines, videos. That's all that's reflect back to us. And so it can look like, oh, well, where are the black designers? We don't see them. Mm -hmm. And so it's it's really kind of up to us to, I mean, in a way, it's up to us to kind of put ourselves out there, of course, and tell our story right. and show 
what we're doing, but it's also, and I, I make this point in the presentation that if you organize a conference or a meetup or you staff employees or things like that, you have a moral obligation as a practitioner in this industry to help increase diversity just for the longevity of the industry. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. One thing that is like sorely lacking that I've seen particularly, I mean, this is with people that I've talked to for the show is mentorship. And it's honestly, it's an endemic problem outside of race. There are a lot of people that are current, like working designers that are not really reaching back and pulling up and helping out. There's not that mentorship there. Have you had any mentors that have helped you out along the way? In this industry specifically, I wouldn't say so, honestly, which actually I've never really thought about that before. I thought about me being a mentor and I've definitely taken that role in people's lives before, but it didn't really ever occur to me that I didn't really have one. I think halfway is just because I kind of came in at the beginning of this being like an actual sort of industry. But I think also I didn't know where to necessarily look. That's a good point. That's a good uh, Yeah. But yeah, that sort of lack of mentorship is something that, I mean, it's holding back the design industry as a whole, but I feel like particularly for black designers, because we're represented really with such low visibility and such low numbers. I mean, I think across design and technology, particularly when we look at, what some of these tech companies are putting out for their workforce numbers, that mentorship component is just important to let up and coming designers know, sort of like you said, that this is an option for them. Yeah. That this is something that they can do. And not only that, but to see someone just like I think the psychological importance of seeing someone who looks like you in an industry that you want to go into, just to have yeah. that kind of, a, I don't know, like psychovisual role model exactly. type of thing is so important. Yeah, I completely agree with you on that 100%. And it's something I'm extremely passionate about. Again, like I really want to elevate the Voltron (laughs) to that kind of status where, you know, girls that like, oh, wow, these women, they look like me. They came from the same neighborhoods I come from. They have the same perspective that I do. And I can do this. Like, I don't want anybody honestly anybody but just as a like a personal passion i don't want any black people to ever look at an industry or a career and say i I can't do that i don't feel right about that and just even as a mother of two i i would never want my kids to to see any kind of feeling over their heads as far as what they can achieve now you're someone that i consider a design pioneer and you've been in the game for a long time. You've worked for some great brands. You've done really phenomenal, amazing work. Thank you. Why do you think more people don't know who you are? I think it's my fault in some ways because I keep it pretty humble. I definitely have my moments. Obviously, I named my site that bitch. So I have my moments where, you know, I walk around popping my collar. But I think that. Some of it is just wanting to be really humble and keep my head low and just be a good worker. But it also kind of harkens back to, I think, what a lot of black women do. Like we're just the mules of the world and we just got to bust our ass and keep it humble. And I think that that's something I'm kind of trying to deprogram myself from. And it doesn't necessarily mean like being Kanye, although I love him. (laughs) But I would love to find a great balance between like 
kind of keeping it low the way that I do and, and having the confidence of a Kanye. And I actually was talking about him the other day because somebody asked me what my dream job would be. And I was like, I kind of have two, really. One of them, I can't say yet because I'm still working on that as a long-term goal. But mm-hmm. it does have to do with the lingerie line that I'm hoping to launch next year. But I also was like, I want to be Kanye West creative director. I just want to creative direct that dude's tours. I want to creative direct his fashion shows. I just want to be in the room with somebody who has that kind of magnetic belief in their own artistic ability. Like there's something very beautiful and infectious about it. And he's definitely like an arrogant dickhead sometimes about it (laughs) but nobody can tell Kanye he's not great and if even a fraction of that confidence was instilled in people I think that they could create just achieve great things so I think a lot of it has to do with me kind of not putting myself out there in that way and it's not even a conscious decision it's just nothing that I really think of inherently but I do know there's a lot of sites that I could definitely put myself out there to like I would love to do an interview with you guys I probably should have a media kit of some kind I definitely could have proposed a South by Southwest panel here and there over the years I could have gone on some panels you know that people you know had asked me if I was interested in But the other half of it just being that I just work my ass off, man. Like, I really work my ass off for so many other people's projects. I put so much of myself and my passion and my energy into making sure that I'm creating these stunning, supreme projects for my clients that I always seem to come last. And I think it kind of speaks to being a mother as well, like just being a parent and mm-hmm. being in that mode of making sure everybody else is cool first. And that's right. something that I need to dismiss as well. Like, I know self-care is like a buzz term now, too. <laughs> in this last year or two, I've noticed a lot of articles about, like, self-care. What do you do for self-care? But that shit is very important. Like, oh, yeah. to actually take care of yourself first is the same concept as putting your oxygen mask on first in a plane and then putting and then helping everybody else. Like if I'm not taking care of myself and if I'm not developing my own projects, if I'm not focusing on my own development as a person, then I'm not going to be able to help anybody else either. And that's not what I want my legacy to be. I don't want my legacy to be about putting myself last that's not what I want it to be anymore. So I think it has a lot to do with that. But then, of course, the other side of it is I don't think the industry, as much as it touts itself on being focused on diversity, I don't think that they're really going out and making an effort to find these black women designers or these Asian women designers who are really, like, have been doing it for a long time. Like, I'm not hard to find. I'm definitely not unknown. I find that, you know, I think a lot of black designers, especially ones that kind of started on the web around, like, the early and mid-2000s, I find that a lot of them know my work and a lot of them know who I am. But I think also part of it is just you have to be really visible on social media these days, too. 
Mm-hmm. And I have such a love-hate relationship with social media, especially Twitter. Like, Twitter is so great and so horrible <laughs> at the same time. Yeah. Like, it's such a succubus. But I think channeling my energy in a different way on social media would also kind of propel me as well. So I'm sure it's all of those things all at once, but I really have to take responsibility for it as well. Like I can't just blame the industry for not giving them my props. (laughs) It has everything to do with, you know, me putting myself out there as well. So that's something I really want to change with the Voltron project with continuing to build Supreme clientele as the agency, but I hope it will be is having myself on these higher platforms because really I feel like I have a message that I want to deliver and I I guess I could sit in my house and tell it to my mama but what good is that going to do at the end of the day you know yeah so yeah I mean I I feel like with the level of work that you've done I mean you've certainly paid your dues so to speak I mean I could see you on a level of like a a Jessica Walsh or a Jessica Hish that's doing like these great big, huge campaigns that's speaking at all these conferences and things like that. I see that. Like, I want that for you extremely badly. Like, I I feel like you are one of the the real, like, unsung designers out there that really deserves to get that shine. So I hope that the black girl designer developer Voltron, I hope that really kind of helps put that that fuel kind of fuels the fire to make that happen. (laughs) I really appreciate that. Let me say that, like, there are people who have said really stunningly amazing things about me and my work. And just to be reminded that people out there are paying attention to me (laughs) and like kind of watching my moves, like that feels really great. I really appreciate that. I really do. And I would love to be on a bigger platform as well. And that's definitely what the, the the remaining of, 2015 and 2016 that's really what it's all about for me so one thing that you had mentioned earlier you were talking about kanye's creative director so and this is kind of i guess a an exclusive for the interview so i've been in contact with him (laughs) (laughs) hopefully we'll have him on the show in the near future i'm working on that because the goal that i sort of had for i guess the past few months is that i wanted to interview just women through the summer So I started in July, so all through July, August, September, leading up to this interview, I've only interviewed women, which I think has been been really good because I personally just wanted the numbers for the show to be like 50-50 or as close to that as possible. Mm -hmm. Because a lot of the people that have been a lot of the early and most kind of visible and strongest supporters of Revision Path have been women, have been black women specifically. Yeah. And so I felt like, well, it doesn't make any sense if I don't have them on there. Because I think at one point, it was like right after South by Southwest, there were like six dudes in a row. And I said, okay, I need to, I need to work on that because it's, it's my show. So I can, <laughs> I need to change that up. I can do that and no one can really say anything about it. And so far, the That's feedback great. I think has really been great. But hopefully I'm going to have him 
on the show in the near future. And of course, definitely, I'll try to connect the both of you. Well, that, I think that that's would something be incredible. That like, even I, if, I could definitely make it happen. Even if you didn't, just the fact that you are making those kind of moves, I am so proud of you. That makes me feel wonderful just for you because you're doing important work. And the fact that you had a realization that you wanted more women on the show and you put it into action, like, it's just really that simple. With all of these companies, podcasts, these shows that speak about diversity but don't directly and intentionally put it into action. Like, I see that shit. So, I could not applaud you more. That's awesome. Well, thank you. Thank you. Talking about, you know, kind of diversity in the design field, sort of to what you mentioned earlier, companies are not really making those concrete actions. They're not making those steps. I think what's happening is they're putting out a lot of lofty goals. Mm -hmm. And they're really trying to take very measured steps into what to them, I feel, is probably just unknown territory. Yeah. And, and it's really just as simple as like talking to brown people, essentially. Like you can talk to us just like you talk to everybody else. Exactly. Like you just have to break, out, break out, out of here. your pipelines, break out of your silos. Yeah, we're out here. Right. We're not in a cave somewhere <laughs> that you need a code <laughs> to get into. That's what cracks me up about people like, where is black Twitter? How can I become a part of black Twitter? I'm like, we are on Twitter stupid like yeah. we're not password protected we are right here you know if you want to find us come find us because we're certainly not quiet oh no we're making trends yeah absolutely making trends setting the conversation and really just becoming part of, of the general media landscape but it's not i feel like it's almost satirized and not recognized in a way that gives it the agency that it deserves I agree. I agree. Because it's not all like silly hashtags, although those are, inc those are fun. incredibly entertaining. <laughs> <laughs> but I'm like, no, we really have something to say here. And we're not all saying the same thing either. Again, like I cannot stress enough. Black people are not a monolith. Like right. we're not just some, we don't have handbooks that we pass out secretly. So I think even companies, I think even if they hit you up, you have this expansive sort of network of black designers now, like even just hitting up Maurice Cherry and saying, hey, can you help us put this diversity plan into real action? I think even that would be a huge step because I know Twitter and Facebook had put out their numbers to be transparent. I'm like, okay, cool. Now what though? What you going Because once you have the numbers out there, because granted, I mean, these types of changes are... The larger the organization is, I feel that it is going to be much slower for them to really kind of make the change. Yeah. One of the problems that I think is happening is that this change is not coming from the top. Mm. This change is often driven from external forces through the media, through Twitter, etc., that are sort of propelling the companies. The companies themselves are not looking at what they're doing and saying, okay, you know what, we need to change this shit. Right. Like the CEO is not issuing a directive to the rest of the company. If anything, what's happening is I feel like some companies and some of them I've been in contact with, they've contacted me. Some of them, honestly, they're just trying to stay out of the news. Mm. They're just trying not to get the bad press anymore. Right. So they need to know who do I write the check to? Which organization do I donate money to? Which problem do I need to throw some more cash at in order for them to stop talking negatively about us in the press? I'm not going to name the company. I'll tell you when we get off, okay. off here, but some of them definitely that's all they're trying to do. They just don't want to be in the press. For any negative stuff, they only want to be looked at in a more positive light, which I can understand that. I can totally understand that. Right. I feel like it's disingenuous to the people that are in those programs that are really feeling like that they're going to get into the industry and make a difference 
Because the flip side of the diversity angle is inclusion, yeah. which is making sure that, yeah, you're going to pump all these people into the industry through Black Girls Code and Code 2040 and all these other initiatives. And they're going to get into this industry that's probably still just like this festering cesspool of misogyny and homophobia and racism. Yeah. And like, we're not taking the steps to make, I think, a cultural change. Some of it, of course, is going to start with companies changing their corporate culture. But mm-hmm. I think we know that the design culture that those sort of pervasive things go through conferences, they go through meetups, they go through other events and things like that. And it just sort of permeates everything. It's like if you had an apartment that was above a pizzeria and everything smelled like garlic, like like <laughs> it's just in everything. Yeah. And so they're not taking the steps to, I think, just change the culture, at least not in a meaningful way that is sincere. Right. I feel like a lot of what's happening, like, Grant, hey, there's great companies that are writing checks. I don't feel like it's coming from a place of sincerity. Yeah. It's coming from a place of we need to cover our ass. Right, right. Yeah, I've noticed that and I completely agree with you. And it's pervasive as hell and it's going to have to, It's there's levels to this shit. Like it, it yeah. can't just reverberate on one level. Like you said, it actually, they have to like make a change to the culture itself and that's going to be on, on every level. And, you know, I used to, not really understand even like diversity training or vice president of diversity. And I was like, well, what the hell is that? But I think that even appointing people to decision-making sort of roles is an important step as well. Like, again, you put your numbers out there and you state that you want to make a difference, but you have to kind of put it into action. And some of it is writing checks. Let's be honest. Like it's, it's really, you live in a yeah, that does help. capitalistic yeah. society, you know, and everything is kind of propelled by money, but I'm like, it's, it's damn near, it's damn sure not a lack of talent that is keeping you from putting diversity into action in your company. Because I know a shitload of talented designers of color. So that ain't it, you know, right. That definitely ain't it. I know there was a while of, the whole thing was going around about, oh, there's this great talent shortage. There's not a great talent shortage. You're just only looking in like these few select places. If you broke out of those silos and maybe tried to set up a presence at a local HBCU, Mm -hmm. you know, not just, oh, we're just going to write you all a check, but like set up a presence, maybe talk to the design department, say, how can we make some sort of like a, a monthly speaker series or something like that? Just something to make sure that you are really kind of pushing design out of what I feel is the the artsy crowd. To be honest, I had this kind of notion when I first joined AIGA last year. Mm-hmm. Because before I joined AIGA, the perception that I got from other members and from what people had told me is that, you know, well, if you didn't go to art school, you really don't have a place in AIGA. And I'm like, but I'm a, I'm a working designer. I've been designing for a lot of years. I don't see why I wouldn't be a part of it. Mm-hmm. And it wasn't until I really joined and then became a part of the diversity and inclusion task force, I was able to see there's still that kind of, I think, a barrier that exists where people who are not in design look at design as this very kind of lofty art gallery, white wall sort of world. Mm -hmm. And it's not design touches everything around us. Everything that we use is, has been designed. It's passed through some lens of design. Yeah. Yep. So it's, it's about kind of trying to break out of, of that perception of what design is and then in turn breaking out the perception of what a designer is. What, what does a designer look like? Right. Exactly. You know? Exactly. And I'm glad you brought that up actually because I think there definitely is, even with me who's been in this industry 
shit, 16 years now, honestly. It feels like there's a barrier even between like agency designers mm. and other designers or non-agency designers, I guess. I don't know. Yeah, it's very interesting. Even like some of the degrees that I see some of these jobs ask for. I'm like, are we like, are we really doing this? Like, <laughs> like I get it. Obviously, you have to have like a medical degree to go into being a doctor and like these kind of fields. Like, that's a, a different kind of training is necessary. But I think that the continued sort of insistence that everyone who wants to work for this company or in this agency or in this field has to follow this exact path is just like so tired like a lot of people are not taking those paths and I really think that should be rewarded actually I think that being self-taught in the design and creative industry specifically is beautiful you know it's dope like it's it takes like a a very driven creative resilient mind to actually teach yourself how to do these things and not just on kind of a technical level, like, okay, you know, HTML, you know, CSS, you know, JavaScript and C plus. And I don't even know what people are learning these days <laughs> on the back end level, you know, and you know how to use Photoshop and Illustrator and that's cool. And that's important. Obviously that's, but that it's still just a first step. There's also dealing with clients and project management specifics and the fact that I find myself being like tech support and server (laughs) administrator. I'm like, I'm kind of like coming from all directions and on all cylinders with the projects that I'm developing. And if you're telling me that because I don't have a degree in this field, but I'm basically doing everything you're doing by myself, (laughs) like what are we really weighing here and again I think especially for some people of color who aren't coming from a situation where they can go to these great plotted art schools like are we really not going to let them in the door because they went a different route like are we really really doing that so so yeah I think that I I haven't tried that hard to get a a gig with an agency specifically you know again because I was working for more like um, entertainment based media brands and and freelancing and kind of doing my own thing but I do sense a bit of a wall there Mm -hmm. and and I'm not sure what to do about it or if it's worth doing anything about it at all or even if it's a big ass huge problem I'm not even sure about that yet but it is something I sense because I do have you know, I do have friends and peers and colleagues that work for agencies, and it's definitely a different sort of culture and a, yeah. a different set of expectations that you should have coming in the door. Like a lot of agencies, I find, don't want to hire designers who don't have previous agency experience. And I guess the familiarity with agency culture is important, but it just seems kind of counterintuitive to me. Yeah, there's still a lot of barriers, you know, just kind of within the community of design that are independent of diversity. I mean, there's, like you said, there's agency versus corporate. There's like freelance versus nine to five. There's self-taught versus art school. There's a longstanding one, graphic designer versus web designer Mm -hmm. versus print designer, you know? So (laughs) there's still those divisions that you just add a layer of diversity on top of that. And it's like, it's a lot. It, It is. It is definitely a lot. And I think that those of us who started 
early on when there wasn't like, when I was working for Viacom, for example, I didn't design anything for four years. In all four years, even though I was coming in, you know, as what I felt like more of a web designer, but I also was really strong with front end development as well. And just the fact that they had a whole team that designed PSDs and sent them to me. I was like, Casimir had a code this? They're like, no, I'm like, that's crazy. And back in my day, and great, great designers, by the way, like really, really beautiful work was coming out of that team. But I'm like, I can't even imagine a world in which I'd only learn to do one thing and not know how to do the other because I'm used to coding my own work, yeah, you know? And I'm like, so you have a front-end developer and you have a web designer and you have, I don't know, a graphic designer who just does like the locals and like creative the creative team who does like more of the on-air stuff. And I'm like, and I'm like, I could do all of that. <laughs> Why don't you just give me all three of their salaries and I'll just do all of it. <laughs> <laughs> it's just very interesting to me what I see like a five person team, you know, kind of churning out what I've kind of had to do by myself. And I'm not even saying that's preferable, honestly, because I really eventually would love to hire a front-end developer and kind of take break from having to code my own work. But I'm also extremely, extremely anal and picky and very specific and analytic about the way my work is coded. And I guess this is kind of a double-edged sword here. I think it's helpful to have some sort of front-end experience as a web designer just to have the knowledge of what can and can't be done in a user-friendly, responsive way as you're designing it. But at right. the same time, I don't want to be limited by that either. Like I I always put myself in a very specific mindset. Like I, some people start coding immediately and then design as they code, which is fine, but I don't do that way. I do, I sit in Photoshop or in design or whatever, and I design all the PSDs first before I do one look of fun and development because I don't want to limit the creativity by what will be easy to code. So I yeah. that's always like an interesting sort of back and forth conundrum that I have. What keeps you kind of motivated and inspired? Because, you know, like you say, you're doing so much stuff, like the projects you're talking about. And then, of course, you also have your kids and everything. What keeps you motivated and inspired to continue? Alcohol. <laughs> <laughs> whiskey is very inspiring. No, I'm kidding. I do love whiskey, though. But I think going back to just having some kind of a self-care system in place and just like feeling really physically and mentally good about myself makes me feel more creative and energetic and more excited to take on new things. I love looking at Pinterest and seeing like I have a design board on Pinterest and I love going back and looking through it you know like my favorite thing is seeing something on Pinterest and being mad that I didn't think of it or damn I'm, that's so good I'm pissed that I didn't do that like that mm -hmm. is such a great feeling for me because it pushes me like, oh, I thought that shit I did was dope, but this is doper. I want to be dope like that. Like really just seeing what other people are doing 
is hugely inspiring to me. And definitely there's a level of competitiveness to me that I couldn't get rid of if I tried. Like that definitely comes from my dad and my family. Like everybody who'd ever met my dad, like you're just like your dad. Like you refuse to lose. You refuse to let anybody be be better (laughs) than you. And so, yeah, looking at other people's work, kind of seeing how other people respond to certain things. And I guess that comes with approaching things from a user experience perspective, another hot topic now, another keyword, another cool thing to have. Like, yeah, I'm a user experience designer. I'm like, what is that? You're a web designer. Like, stop again. <laughs> like, of course, it, like, I feel like it should be inherent to be, to approach web design from a user perspective. I'm just still shocked that there's like, that's like a separate job or whatever, but more power to getting that money, user experience designers. There's so many titles out there so now. So many titles. And I feel like if you don't have that title on your resume specifically, they're not going to look at yeah, it. Yeah, and it's it's like, come on, I don't know. It's that bothers me too. That's actually something that I thought of last night that I wanted to mention. So I definitely want to loop back to that. But okay, I love music too. Music is deeply inspiring to me. I'm I'm almost always listening to music when I'm creating. I love reading. I love books. I love like extremely gifted writers in general like kind of create vision in my head like Mm -hmm. I guess it's really anybody being creative you know like anybody manifesting the creativity in their head in some kind of a way that is visual oral that's you know extremely inspiring to me I can honestly like walk down the street and even see an ad or a billboard or a magazine cover that feels like deeply inspiring to me. Like I'll like keep like take a photo of it almost in my head and be like, I love the way that they did the typography on that. And I want to do something that makes me feel like I feel when I look at that, like I'm like that definitely that kind of artist where I'm kind of seeing beauty in a lot of things. And there's even been times if I'm working like day and night on a project that has like any kind of a tight deadline and it's like literally what I'm doing for like 12 hours a day, I will go to sleep and dream in like Photoshop or I'll wow. like start coding it in my head. I know I'm <laughs> such a fucking geek. Like I really will wake up like I I just had a dream in HTML. Like what the hell is wrong with you? <laughs> and on the one hand, I'm like, oh girl, you need a break. But on the other hand, I'm like, this is really obviously what I'm supposed to be doing with my life in some way because it comes so naturally to me and it makes me feel really, really damn good. And I actually have a couple of friends of mine now that they work at nine to fives, they work for agencies, they work corporate and they don't take any freelance projects because on the one hand, they don't have to. I didn't do, I almost did no like freelance work when I was working at Viacom specifically because it was very demanding on my time and I'm just financially awesome. So I didn't really have to. But what I found is when I got back into the freelance game last year, I felt kind of atrophied in a way. Like Mm -hmm. I had to almost reinvigorate my personal creativity because I was holding other people's work or having to stay within very strict sort of style guide and branding sort of perimeters. And I think 
that's why I'm also like hugely celebratory of any designer who does a lot of personal projects. Like it's awesome to have a reel that has like the big clients in it, but I'm like, what are you doing for you? You know, where you don't have limits that are determined by other people where you don't already have like a lot of rules in what you can create. Like what is, I think every single creative, every designer should have one personal project where they just absolutely go ape shit on it. Like my personal website is sarahhoneyyoung.com. And it is so like, it's not user friendly. It's kind of <laughs> responsive. It's not fully responsive. I still have to loop back and work on it. But it's, it definitely adapts to mobile. It adapts to tablets. But I like to have everything in between, you know, those set sort of media query marks. Like I'd like to have it fully responsive. So it's not there yet. But it's crazy weird. It's not something that I would ever be able to design for a client. And that's why I love it. Like, it really just is something I just went crazy on. And I it felt really good about it. And it really kind of kick-started a different level of creativity. And so just really just having my own projects on the side of everything I'm doing for my clients keeps me, like, deeply inspired. Because I, I don't, like at the end of the day, and I'm probably in, even in, might be in, even in the, the wrong industry. I don't like people telling me what to do. <laughs> <laughs> even my clients, my favorite kind of clients, and this is actually most of my clients now, they come to me and they say, I love your work. I've loved you for, for years. This is a basic outline of what my company is about. You know, I have a questionnaire where I ask them certain, you know, specific questions about branding colors and other sites they like and what is hey, what do you want it to feel like? And what do you want it to say to your clients? But then they're like, outside of this, do just be dope. Do something dope. Do what you want. Yeah. And I'm like, I just, oh, it's like orgasmic. <laughs> I mean, I feel like that, that's the best kind of advice, or I'm going to say advice, but that's the best kind of direction that a client can give. Like they're coming to you because you are the expert. So they're not going to try to micromanage it. They're just like, I know you do dope shit. Here's my project. Make it dope. Exactly. There's some designers that don't like that because they're like, how the hell am I supposed to know what the hell to do if I if you don't give me any direction? But I love it. If, especially when a lot of these clients, I already kind of am familiar with their projects or I'm familiar with them as people in some way. And so we already have like that camaraderie built in. And it's fun to me. I don't necessarily like being a design monkey where they come in like, I want it exactly like this. You don't need to hire me then. Yeah. <laughs> you know, like you don't have to hire somebody on my level to kind of be your design robot. Like I want to flex on this shit. You know, I want it to be dope. And I think that if every client could be like that, it would be perfect. I would even love like going back to the, like the JLo site <laughs> that I mentioned. That mm -hmm. was done by Kyokin. Do you remember those dudes? Oh my God. Yeah. You took it back. I remember that. I remember them. Yeah. I remember reading an article. I don't remember where it was. It might have been the New York Times or Fast Company or something like that. If Fast Company was even around back then. It was like 2001, I think. And they were very Kanye West, actually. Kanye West is now an adjective. They were very Kanye in that they <laughs> said that they would turn down clients. Like clients would come to them with all the money and if they didn't want Kyokin to like flex, Kyokin would say no. And I remember reading that 
you know, 14 years ago now, I remember reading that and being like, that's what I want. I want that. I want that. And whatever it looks like, I want that. I want to be able to be known as this designer, as this agency that you should really just go to the Supreme clientele if you want them to flex, <laughs> if you want them to explode with creativity. Like, don't give them a lot of guidelines. Just let them, like, trust them, have the relationship with them that will allow them to really just go all the way balls to the wall on your shit. That's what I love. And that's what I love about the Lost Queens project that I mentioned before. I love that everything I said to the client about, well, what about this? What about that? They're like, yes, I love it. Do it. <laughs> and even the things are like, well, I don't know. I was like, well, you know, and I, I would expand my perspective and they're like, yes, do it. Like, I love that. I absolutely love that. I think it creates the best sort of client relationship too. And I'm like, I would like to be able to talk to you. Like not necessarily like you're my friend because friends with clients, not necessarily a good thing. <laughs> But like when the client is a fan. Yeah. 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 When they, when they, tr it's just like that trust level there. And that's why I like to have a lot of conversation with my clients as well. Like there's a lot of preliminary sort of conversation that I have before I start mocking up because I want us to vibe. Quite frankly, I want us to sort of operate on that level. And I think that's also why I don't do a lot of super, super corporate work. Like a mm -hmm. lot of my work is, has a very distinctive sort of, pop culturally sort of specific perspective to it. And I think a lot of corporate entities obviously can't, you can't go too crazy That's true. <laughs> with it. You know, they, they still have to look kind of buttoned up and everything. And I think there's actually a skill to designing that way too. I just don't want to do it. Yeah. So something you mentioned that I, I want to touch on, because this has sort of been a prevailing thread, I think, through a lot of what you mentioned as it relates to your design career. And, and I want to talk about this, I guess, in a way that is not demeaning or anything. But one thing that I hear from when I talk to black designers, and these can be agency designers, it can be, these can be freelance designers, is that oftentimes a client or a company may want them to quote unquote design black. Hmm. Like they want them to design something urban or something like that. And to kind of, I guess, mirror this to, to what you've been mentioning throughout the interview, a lot of the places that you've worked, mm -hmm. a lot of the clients that you have sort of have this very strong, I guess I can say pro-black. I don't know if that's fully the way to put it, but certainly you have worked for entities and you've had clients specifically that it is all about blackness. It's mm -hmm. about positive representations of blackness. And while we know that blackness is not a monolith... Sometimes I feel, and I mean, I've gotten this myself because I've done, I went to a HBCU, I did the Black Weblog Awards, I'm doing this. And so people will look at my work and just think, oh, black, black, black. Mm -hmm. So you do black stuff. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Have you run into that? Or if you have, how have you sort of broken out of that? I have not specifically had anybody come to me and be like, can you make it more black? Can you black it up? <laughs> yeah. I've, I haven't had that. I'm trying to think of exactly what my reaction would be to somebody who said that to me after laughing uproariously. <laughs> yeah, I mean, definitely the vast majority of my work 
be it nine to five or freelance has been black focused or by the proprietor was definitely a black person. Definitely not on purpose. I'm not like, no white people don't hire me. I'm like, yeah, hire me. Shit. You know, your money green. Same as everybody else. But I do like to do things that are specifically cultural. I am finding that that is what I enjoy doing the most. I definitely was told by a recruiter last year when I was still like kind of, you know, seeing what was out there as far on the job front. He definitely proposed that I have a separate portfolio. Mm-hmm. He didn't specifically say, because he was a black man himself, he didn't specifically say, Interesting. make okay. it less black. <laughs> but he did say that I needed I probably needed a portfolio that was more corporate. Like he used the word corporate, but I knew what he meant. And I thought about it and I was like, well, first of all, what the hell am I going to put on there? (laughs) Like the best things on my portfolio, you know, it's not hard to tell pretty much immediately that it's not in some way very, very diverse and cultural. But like Very Smart Brothers is one of the layouts that I absolutely love. This 1839 layout that I've done is is incredible. I'm oh, I'm so proud of it. I'm so proud of it. We actually had a meeting for some of the writers. We had an event a couple weeks ago, and it was the first time that we debuted it. And the reaction was so awesome. Like, it was so dope. Like, I think that, like, just me working kind of in solitude <laughs> most of the time, Uh I can look at something and be like, this is dope. And the client can think it's dope, but it's really the people who are going to be using it, reading it, interacting with it. It's their reaction that really kind of makes it a hundred percent like, okay, this really is dope. But so many things that I love on my portfolio have kind of that focus. Like even the stuff that I've done with plus size women, you know, I did PSP fit. I did the Curvy Con website. I, I just redesigned the Curvy Fashionista, which is one of the hugest. It's pretty much like the plus size Refinery 29. Mm-hmm. And I'm Soul Bounce that I also owned for a few years. I'm like, what am I going to have on my portfolio if I take all right, these right. things off? So now I'm kind of like, what's wrong with being a designer that people look and be like, oh, this designer designs very black. I'm like, I'll be that. I'll be that. I am absolutely fine with that because there are tons of black clientele out there that need dope web design. Their companies are amazing. And I'm just fine with that, to be honest with you. And actually, I'm really glad you brought that up too because one of my best friends, Uche Wugugu, was working for a media company in Houston. She moved from uh, New York last year as well. And she wrote something amazing on Medium about getting fired, well, let go, quote unquote, by her company. They didn't specifically say what it was, but she knows that it was an issue on her speaking out about Sandra Bland on Twitter and starting a dialogue about kind of how hard it was to be a black creative in a very, very majority white space. And her piece really made me realize and kind of think really hard in a way I never had before about like, oh, wow, this is actually a reality for more black people than it is not being like one of the only black people at the company and kind of the code switching and having to kind of navigate that space in which they can't necessarily walk into work and be mad about a a Sandra Bland. When I was working for obviously vibe and ultra star and bet 
that never crossed my mind. Like, oh, I actually cannot talk about this at work. I actually cannot say on Twitter that I'm feeling nervous about going into work today and having conversations around the water cooler and white people saying something that will greatly offend me and not being able to say anything about it. Like I've never been in that situation. Even Ultrastar, I was the only black person that worked there actually. And one of the only women, but I think again, because it was a media company and these were just some really, really cool white boys, like really cool. I was the first woman to ever get pregnant there. <laughs> I was pregnant with my daughter there and they basically built their whole maternity leave program to my liking. <laughs> wow. So that was awesome. But I guess because it was a media company and these were young white dudes who are huge music fans and kind of young entrepreneurs themselves. I never felt like that around them either. Like huge hip, like legit huge hip hop fans, like from New York, legit hip hop fans. So yeah, I never really had to navigate that space in that way. And I think I won't say I'm lucky for it because that implies that other people are unlucky. And honestly, we're all just trying to live here. We're all just trying to make a living. I'm thankful. I will say I'm thankful that I've never had to deal with that. I can't say I won't ever have to deal with it, but I'm very thankful to be able to be making a good living right now off the fact that I am a black woman and that I have a specific skill as far as designing things that appeal to people who are, I guess, like me, really young, black, culturally aware um, culturally sensitive, womanist. What else can I say about my clients? I guess just creative, brave as hell, and really just having kind of the same vision where they want to strike out and have a voice in a world where that's kind of trying to shut us the hell up. And so that if I could continue to get clients like that, and again, just race aside clients who really like come to their projects and their work from that perspective, like on kind of like a worldly perspective, a, a culturally diverse perspective, that would be amazing. And so if being known as like a quote unquote black designer continues to get me clients like that, then I am a hundred percent for it because I don't even think I'd be happy trying to tone down the blackness <laughs> of my work. I just think that would be so strange. I think our work should reflect who we are, especially creatives. Like, how can it not? Like, I don't want to be like a soulless design zombie at all. That's not appealing to me. And I really feel for people that have to. Are you satisfied creatively? No, not yet. <laughs> and honestly, I don't know that I will ever be. And I think that's part of my drive. I'm definitely more creatively satisfied now than I was this time last year even. I still have so many things that I want to accomplish as a creative, like so many, and a lot of them are personal projects, again, that I've had to put on the back burner for a while. I think I will reach as close too satisfied as possible for a perfectionist such as I in the next year or two when I can kind of bring all of these things to fruition. Where do you kind of see yourself, I guess, in the next five years or so, kind of, I guess, continuing that thread? Rich. No, I don't know. 
<laughs> oh gosh no i would love to be more financially stable than i am right now like it's it's pretty good financially right now but i would love to have the financial means to travel more you know and see more things i think that's important for a creative as well important for any kind of artist to travel and see other things you know see things they've never seen before there's so many beautiful things on this planet that I've that I would love to lay eyes on so many cities I want to visit that I haven't had an opportunity to visit so five years from now I would love to have my passport definitely more filled with stamps I would love to travel with my children so my children can experience those things and that's you know and I'm very very aware that that's privilege you know I want to see other things I would love my agency to be in a really really great place I would love to have a staff of people who I believe in and vibe with and and I'm in who are invested in the same vision as me and kind of creating these beautiful projects I would love to have this other thing that I'm working on that I can't say <laughs> right now, but I, I'll tell you after we get off the call. Just some things I'm nervous about putting out there, you know, because I'm still plotting it in my head. Right. And I've even talked on Twitter before, like, don't tell everybody what you're doing. <laughs> don't speak on every single thing you're doing. Like, kind of hold some of these things in until you you really have it plotted out in your head because Twitter... And I guess not just Twitter, even if you're in company with a lot of people, other people's opinions can divert you from the purity of your vision sometimes. And it is important to get other people's advice, certainly. Like, I definitely have, like, a trusted group of core, often amazing, smart, talented, beautiful people that I talk to about these things. But I really need to have something plotted in my head to a, a certain point before I want anybody to weigh in in any way, shape, or form. So that's one of those things. But I did mention that I want to start a lingerie line last year, which this has actually been the works for a couple of years, too. I have a lingerie blog I do called Most Beautifulist, which is one of my many, many personal projects that I've put on hiatus every now and then when I have to devote my energy to other things. But it kind of speaks to what we were speaking earlier about sensuality and about celebrating a myriad of body types and celebrating sort of voluptuousness and what I call thick snacks, big vines, whatever you want to call us. <laughs> I absolutely love celebrating that. And I, it was annoying me. Like I started Most Beautifulest because it was actually annoying me that lingerie lines like La Perla and Argent Provocateur make this absolutely gorgeous lingerie, but it doesn't come in my size certainly and I'm a freaking size 12 I'm like so what about my 14s and my 16s and my 18s you know that are gorgeous and beautiful and want to feel beautiful and want to be adorned and dress their body like the temple that it is and they can't even fit this tiny little sliver of lace that you're calling <laughs> a bra and I was like I want to develop a lingerie line for plus size women that is on that level of quality that's on that level of craftsmanship that's on that edginess so yeah so that's really what most beautiful was about was kind of establishing myself in the lingerie industry in general and kind of making some contacts there and seeing what's out there and really just speaking to women about what they want and what they would like to see and what they love that doesn't come in their size or and this even goes for women who aren't necessarily plus size but they just have titties for days 
<laughs> Even some of their bras are just whack and boring and make them feel like they're strapped in a freaking harness all day. So that's something that I'm working on as well. So in if, if in five years I can be putting on a lingerie fashion show on like the production level of Victoria's Secret, but with all gorgeous plus size women stomping their way down that runway, that would be heaven. <laughs> Absolute <laughs> freaking heaven. Cause just again, coming, you know, from a background of being a trained performer, I love the drama of stuff like that. And I think that's why, although I love to be known as a web designer, I'm kind of branding myself more as a creative director now because I don't think that I just have to sit down at my computer and design websites all day. Like, I think that my talents and my interests and my goals like span far beyond that. So if in five years I can be doing all of these things, I will be really, really happy. I probably still won't be satisfied <laughs> because I'm crazy, but I will definitely be happy. What advice would you give to someone out there that they have followed your work or maybe they also want to just come into design and they know about you. What advice would you give to someone that is wanting to become a designer? I definitely have given so much advice out through Twitter, people that email me. And I always make sure to mention that they should have a personal aesthetic. First of all, like what is your personal sort of perspective on design? What kind of a designer, what kind of an artist do you want to be? Like, what do you like inherently? Because I don't feel like we have to abandon all of that when we design things for other people. I think we can still have a really, really strong sort of aesthetic that we've already developed for ourselves. Because let's be honest, like a lot of success nowadays is built off people who know how to brand themselves. You know? Yeah. And even speaking to my friends who live in other cities, I don't know if that's like a specifically like an, a big city sort of attitude. Just being a New Yorker, everybody in New York is a brand, <laughs> <laughs> you know, whether they look at it that way or not. And so I think coming in and, and knowing what kind of a brand you want to establish for yourself is very important and not letting money or other people sort of dissuade you from that. I think that's important that because that speaks to integrity as well. In a less abstract way, <laughs> I would definitely tell them to study, see what other people are doing. Again, Pinterest is a great resource to see like kind of quote unquote trends in web design or see like great uses of typography, kind of just see what the possibilities are. It doesn't have to be logo in the left corner, banner here, navigation under it, like absolve yourself of the expectation that you have to do things one certain way like study just like writers should read <laughs> as much as possible i think anybody coming into this industry as an artist needs to look at other art look at other design look at what other people are doing and experiment like crazy buy a domain call it whatever the hell you want it could just be a keyboard smash and just go crazy on it just design stuff just do stuff experiment like see if just set a goal in mind or just go into photoshop and design something you could never ever freaking code and then learn how to code that shit i love smashingmagazine.com i really do i love that website i'm on it all the time i think that's a really great resource they have great articles on there great advice css tricks 
<laughs> like have basically these bookmarks where that you can sort of refer to because there's no reason you have to try and keep all of this stuff in mind. Read what other designers think about XYZ, like read their perspective on clients and even writing proposals. Like I've lately been reading a lot of articles about whether to make a proposal or not. And are they a waste of time or not? Or are they landing the client or not? Just trying to get like as much sort of knowledge on that as possible because I'm kind of trying to rethink my proposal theory right now. I still go to like the design inspiration sites that were really big back in the day. Like I love from up North. I love that site. There's really interesting stuff on there. I like, I think it's like best agency sites.com or one page love.com is a great resource. Kind of see what people are fitting on just one long scrolling page. I love what people are doing with parallax. Now I really, really, really want to learn how to do some of that parallax stuff. Although it takes like, the entirety of a year for it to load. I think it's really cool. It's kind of expanding like our thoughts behind what we can do with this sort of 2D flat surface of a computer screen. What other sites do I love? I definitely read Fast Company. Just again, just keeping abreast of the business side of the business. I really like to check out like Code in Theory and Work and Go, like those agency sites, just kind of see what the big dogs are doing and kind of how you can kind of like employ some of what they're doing with your smaller business. And I even think it's not, you know, even as a self-taught person, maybe this is like clutch your pearls sort of advice, but I would say take a class here or there. Like I'm not even opposed to taking a class. Like I really like general assembly in DC. There's some interesting classes. I would like to brush up on some things. You don't have to necessarily go out and get a degree, but take a class here and there, even just to meet other designers, you know, and meet these instructors and kind of get advice from a 360 degree perspective. So those are all things I tell people that want to get into this industry. It's mainly just about exploring and seeing what the possibilities are, deciding what kind of a designer you want to be, and also deciding that you don't want to be just one kind of a designer. You don't have to come into this industry and only be a web designer or only be a graphic designer. Like if you are interested in five different things, don't just because job sites say this is the title they're hiring for, you're always going to be a stronger candidate if you're like, yep, I know how to do that. However, I also know how to do these things and those things and I can code my own work and and I also, you know, I can I can draw. Use all of yeah. your strengths. Yeah, to get what you want, honestly. Well, honey, just to wrap things up, where can our audience find out more about you and about your business and everything that you're doing online? All of my websites and projects are usually certainly by the time this is published, <laughs> will be accessible <laughs> via sarahhoneyyoung.com. That's S-A-R-A-H-H-U-N-Y-Y-O-U-N-G.com. That's my full name. You can also find me on Twitter at honey, at H-U-N-Y. And yeah, everything I'm working on will always be accessible both of those places. And definitely come and say hi. Send me an email. SupremeClientele.co, S-U-P-R-E-M-E-C-L, 
I-E-N-T-E-L-E dot C-O. That was so hard for me to spell, by the way. (laughs) 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 That is my agency website. You know, come look at my work and uh, and hire a girl. Excellent. Well, this has been, I mean, this is a milestone episode. This is a milestone interview for me. This is like, I can check this off my bucket list. (laughs) No, really, like the chance to like really sit down with you and and interview you about your work and and everything that you're doing. For me, this is just so personally fulfilling, and I hope that folks that are listening really learn more about you, follow your work, and just see just what a dope-ass fucking designer you are. So (laughs) thank you so so, so much. Thank you. Thank you. It was my absolute pleasure. Thank you so much. And that's it for this week. Big thanks to Honey for coming on the show. And of course, thanks to you for listening. I know that was a long interview. But you can find out more about Honey and her work through the links in the show notes at revisionpath.com. Thanks, of course, as always, to our wonderful sponsors, MailChimp, Hover, and Creative Market. When it comes down to email marketing, MailChimp makes it extremely simple. They have great reporting and autoresponder features. And you can send 12,000 emails to 2,000 subscribers for free. No contracts and no credit card required. Check them out at MailChimp.com. Hover is the best way to buy and manage domain names, and they give you exactly what you need to get the job done. Get yourself a new domain or transfer your current domains to Hover, and you can save 10% off your first purchase by using the promo code 100 episodes at checkout. And lastly, there's Creative Market, which is a marketplace that sells beautiful ready-to-use design content from thousands of independent creators from around the globe. Head over to CreativeMarket.com today, pick up those six free goods that are available for free every Monday, And if you see something else that you like, use our discount code REVISIONPATH and you can save 20% off your purchase. This episode was edited by RJ Basilio and produced by me, Maurice Cherry. Our intro is by Music Man Dre with intro and the new outro audio by Yellow Speaker. Make sure you're subscribed to us on iTunes. Leave a rating and a review. It really helps us get new listeners and I'll even read your review right here on the show. Revision Path is a 318 media project. If you like the work we're doing with the podcast and the website, then visit us over at Patreon. Just go to patreon.com forward slash revision path and become a patron today. Pledge levels are super affordable. They start at just $1 per month and you'll get access to behind the scenes information about the show, upcoming interviews, and so much more. Thank you so much for listening. 100 episodes. We did it, y'all. I will see you next time.